Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for tuning into ADH TV. Now, the ADH TV app is now available on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Just search ADH, there it is on your screen, and you can download it and watch me for free. Live, of course, and on demand. Now, on your television, if you go to the App Store on Apple TV or the Google Play Store, if you download on there, it means you can watch on the big screen. Well, tonight on the show, we'll go to the United States and speak with Peggy Grandy. The bumbling Joe Biden, of course, gives us plenty to talk about. I'll also be taking a look at the crisis in aged care. I've been going on about this for ages. The Morrison government totally ignored the issue and only offered up Band-Aid solutions, thereby leaving the industry still crying out for help. We'll speak to Jason Waller, the CEO of IntelliCare. Now, you most probably never heard of them. No one in government wants to speak to them, yet his product and service is, in my opinion, a significant answer to easing the burden on aged care homes. It keeps people in their homes for longer and doesn't burden the already stretched system and, of course, the waiting lists. So we'll speak to Jason Waller. Just before we go, though, my attention has been... Or go on. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> Just before we go on, my attention's been turned to a brilliant column by the Victorian MP Tim Smith, who's analysed where to next for the Liberal Party. And he wrote this, quote, It is now time for the Liberal Party to reset. Stop obsessing with the woke causes of inner urban elites and focus on the true forgotten people in the middle and outer suburbs, as well as rural and regional Australia. He said, swings at this election against Labor in their working class heartland prove this is where the Liberal Party must focus. This, of course, is what Dutton was on about yesterday. He said, these are, this is Tim Smith, these are the Australians who'll bear the brunt of what the Teals are demanding in terms of emissions reductions by 2030. He went on, the people of Kuyong, Wentworth, Goldstein, North Sydney, McKellar aren't forgotten or quiet. They are loud, entitled and privileged. The great future, he writes, of the great party that Menzies founded was never about the top end of town, unquote. Tim Smith Spot on. There's a new heartland out there for the Liberal Party, and the sooner they understand that, the better off they'll be. Forget the Trent Zimmermans of this world. They were merely seat warmers in the Parliament. Time to represent the forgotten people in the suburbs, not the loud, privileged elite. Let me know what you think. Email me, Jones at adh.tv. Well, now, I think I warned last week and again last night that it wouldn't take long for the demonisation of Peter Dutton to begin. I note the ABC have argued that he faced no rivals on his way to becoming opposition leader, shorthand for saying, well, he beat no one. But in the days leading up to the party room vote, the ABC told us that Liberal MPs had voiced concern that Dutton would be hard to sell in places like Victoria, where Teal independence snapped up Kuyong and Goldstein, and that Peter Dutton had an image problem. Well, let's dismantle some of this prejudicial nonsense there is no leader in recent times who has come to the position of political leadership, and let's take them all, Albanese, Morrison, Shorten, Turnbull, Gillard, even Tony Abbott, and yes, include John Howard and Bob Hawke. No person has come to a position of party leadership with greater experience 
and more credentials across an enormous government portfolio experience. Peter Dutton's been in the parliament for 21 years, has won the seat of Dixon, a notionally Labor seat, eight elections in a row. I think the people know him. He's been the assistant treasurer to Peter Costello. He's held ministries in the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison cabinets. He served on the National Security Committee. And as he said yesterday, and I quote, I've served as our country's health minister and as our sports minister. I've been a defence minister, home affairs minister. I've been on the expenditure review committee. I've been part of the National Security Committee and I've been part of the leadership of the party, unquote. I repeat, no one in Australia's recent political history has come to a leadership position better credentialed. Prime Minister Albanese talks about being brought up in housing commission accommodation. Well, Peter Dutton made the point yesterday. His parents worked hard for every dollar. He said they weren't financially well off. And he said yesterday, quote, I started part-time work at a butcher shop after school until I started university. I saved and bought a house at 19 and built a business from nothing to ultimately employing 40 people, unquote. Well, one journalist brought up the criticism by the West Australian Premier Mark McGowan that Peter Dutton was, quote, an extremist who isn't very smart, unquote. Mr Dutton offered an excellent response, quote, all I would say to the Australian people is look at me and form your own judgment. Listen to what I'm saying and form your own judgment as opposed to listening to these politically motivated statements, unquote. In relation to not being very smart, Peter Dutton answered, quote, I have a bachelor's degree in business and public administration. I was not a committed student at school. I was more interested in making money. I started a business from nothing, employing 40 staff. I've been on the front bench of the Liberal Party since 2004, having been identified by John Howard in my first term as capable of being appointed quickly to the ministry, unquote. Asked about how he plans to change the rigid perception some voters may have of him, He made the simple but fluent observation, and I quote, I've been given tough jobs as a minister. It was difficult at home affairs, but I was ultimately able to cancel the visas of just over 6,000 criminals, people who'd committed sexual offences against women and children, committed murder, serious criminal acts, and deport them from our country, unquote. He said, quote, it's pretty hard to break into a smile when you're making those announcements, unquote. He was asked whether he regretted walking out on the apology to the stolen generations. And while he did say that it was a mistake, he nonetheless offered a splendidly coherent explanation. He said it was largely because of his own background and experience. And I quote him, as a policeman, I worked in Townsville. I remember going to many domestic violence incidents, particularly involving indigenous communities. And for me at the time, I believe that the apology should be given when the problems were resolved. And the problems, he said, are not resolved. He went on, there are little boys and girls in part of our country in 2022 that slept in a shipping container last night to get through the hours of darkness in Indigenous communities and it's completely unacceptable, unquote. And he made this point with which millions of Australians could identify, quote, going to a meeting here in Canberra and giving 10 acknowledgements to country, that's fine, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, but I want to know how it is we're going to support those kids. I want to know how it is we're going to get better health outcomes and lower mortality rates, more kids through university, just finishing primary school and secondary school to start with. That is the perspective I bring to it, unquote. This is outstanding stuff. The Liberal base will be cheering. It's what the new Senator Jacinta Price spoke to us about last week. 
The simple point is this. There's much more to this man than he's given credit for. He's got experience, conviction and decency and an awful lot of success to support the opinions he offers as opposition leader. Peter Dutton is a formidable candidate. The least we can do is to honour his simple request. And I quote again, I want people to see the entire person I am and make their own judgments when they meet me, unquote. It's surely not too much to ask. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the highly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan. No wonder she knows her stuff. America has been dominated by tragedy and of note, is that the husband of the fourth grade teacher killed in last week's mass shooting at a Texas primary school has himself died from a heart attack. He was preparing for the funeral of his high school sweetheart and wife of 24 years, Irma, who was one of two teachers killed at the Robb Elementary School in Texas, along with 19 children. Relatives said Irma, who was 46, and her fellow teacher Eva died trying to protect their students after a gunman burst into the classroom, barricaded the doors and opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle. The children aged nine and 10 and the gunman himself were killed. Multiple others were wounded. Joe, the husband who was 50, had dropped off flowers at his wife's memorial last Thursday morning. After returning home, he fell over and died of a tar heart attack. Peggy Grandy joins me right now. Peggy, thank you for your time, but it doesn't get any more tragic than this, does it? It's a scenario of tragedy, Alan, and thank you for having me on to talk about it today. It really is tragic, and we appreciate you covering it even from across the world. There have been 7,663 gun deaths this year in America. That's excluding suicide. But I note some options to deal with the tragedy have been proposed. Now, the NBA coach Steve Kerr, in an emotional video that went viral, accused the Republicans of defying the will of the American people by not acting on HR8, which, which, HR8, which is a proposed bill that would expand criminal background checks to would-be gun buyers on the internet and at gun shows and give the FBI more time to investigate suspicious gun buyers. Peggy, that seems to make sense. What do you make of it? Well, H.R. 8 has been passed by the House and it's stalled out in the Senate. And it's very disingenuous for anybody to accuse the Republicans of stalling this out when the Democrats running, are running the House, the Senate and the White House. And H.R. 8, as much as people want to talk about gun restrictions and laws being added to the books, this one would not have prevented this particular tragedy. And really all it does is it takes the same background requirements that are required of licensed dealers and puts them, as you said, on gun shows and private dealers. This young man unfortunately bought his gun legally from a licensed dealer, passed the background check because there was no prior indication that he would do something like this. And so HR 8 mm. um, would not have prevented it. And the Democrats, if they really want to be serious about this, they have all the power. So they need to stop complaining and hand waving and admiring the problem and really buckling down and doing something about it. Well said. Now, the Texas Senator Ted Cruz has said, and I quote, we need to act by hardening schools' security and hiring armed police officers to keep our kids safe. Peggy, has it come to this? What do you make of that? 
Well, there are some places in New York City and other big cities that already have magnetometers or metal detectors as the students enter. There's other schools that have implemented something called the Guardian Program, which um, arms and trains, it could be teachers or administrators, it could be the nurse or the lunch lady, um, to handle weapons safely on campus to provide that extra layer of security. And so I do think we need to relook at how we protect our children, especially the most vulnerable above us. And I suspect that nothing been done legislatively because a lot of legislators either don't have young children in school or their kids go to private schools where they are duly protected. Good we we, ob we are obligated to provide that same protection to our public school Yes, children. very good point. So schools would become more like airports. Yeah, and you know, I know there's arguments on both sides of this. What would that do to the psyche of a child? But perhaps we're at a point where that would make a child feel safe and feel yeah. valued and feel like they were worth protecting. So mm. maybe the time is to reconsider something and, like and, that. And another point about reducing the number of entrances at a school. I think some states have already done that, haven't they? A lot have, and this is not a federal conversation yet. This is something that not only is at the state level, but even county by county and school district by school district, they are making these choices. So even across Texas, there's a yeah. wide range of schools and what their protocols are. So maybe we need to look at at least at the state level, having some consistency or having minimum federal quite, standards. Quite here, after Port Arthur and the massacre, we got rid of assault weapons altogether. Wasn't there legislation in 1994 which prohibited the manufacture, transfer and possession of about 118 firearm models and all magazines which held more than 10 rounds. The ban expired in 2004. Biden's calling on Congress to revive that bill. What do you make of that, Peggy? Well, some states like California still have that on the books. But I think when you get into the business of banning this gun or that gun, if this gunman was intent on doing harm, he would have just purchased another weapon. Yeah. And frankly, if he had an hour in the classroom, he could have done serious damage with a butter knife or a pencil or um, a pistol for that matter. And so um, the time element is really important. We need to be looking at prevention. You know, what are we doing to support the mental health of these young people who are especially now on the heels of COVID are so isolated and feeling alone. What are we doing to support the families and the value of life and our American values that we hold dear? Right. We need to be looking at preventing these tragedies, bolstering the family. Statistics show that families that um, are fatherless or have single parents are much more likely to have children who proceed in these areas. Well, and so we need to be preventing. Well, what about first. these red flag laws, which would involve giving grants to states that introduce red flag laws, which are design, I think, to ensure that people who exhibit some signs of being dangerous to themselves or others can be denied access to guns by order of a judge. Now, I think a number of states have those laws. They're now being discussed by a group of Senate Democrats and Republicans. What do you make of that? Well, nearly half of our states have some sort of law, like a red flag law on the book. And what they're wanting to do is federalize that. But this gets really tricky because there's two elements of it. They have to prove, first of all, that there's some sort of mental lapse yeah, um, yeah. happening. And then the second part is they actually have to have conduct that indicates their harm to themselves or others. And so a lot of times in this shooter's case, for instance, there was no conduct that indicated prior that this would be happening. And sometimes even words and threats are not enough. It actually takes the action to occur. So it sounds good on paper, but I don't know even if a red flag law would have prevented something like this and Excellent. many other tragedies like it. Excellent point.
Let's go to that man again, Biden, in trouble again. Seven days ago, Biden was asked, are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Listen to the Biden question and response. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are. That's the commitment we made. Oh, Peggy, I mean, this bloke, honestly, I'm sorry for all Americans. That was during his visit to Japan with the Prime Minister Kishida and Biden, without the auto cue, said he'd be prepared to use force to defend the island nation against China. Peggy, that goes much further than America's involvement in Ukraine and deviates from the traditional strategy used in Washington to remain ambiguous about such a sensitive issue. How did this go down in America? Well, everything Joe Biden does and says is ambiguous, but it's not strategic ambiguity like we talk about. And this actually is the policy. America has a policy that it will defend Taiwan. Now, how we describe defending is very different. And it doesn't necessarily mean boots on the ground, but it does mean that we stand in support of Taiwan's autonomy. And so even though the White House backed it up, his statement actually had quite a lot of bipartisan support. Yes, I mean... He was asked, you didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? And we heard him say, yes, that's the commitment we made. But Peggy, apart from this being a shift from the traditional notion of strategic ambiguity, which you alluded to, a policy designed to minimise the risk of a direct conflict with China, which views Taiwan, of course, as part of its territory, despite never controlling it, Biden asserted the US has a commitment. That is the commitment he made. Now, Peggy, isn't it true that the US has no mutual defence pact with Taiwan? That even the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, which is often cited by the administration, commits the US to provide weapons and other support, but doesn't carry an obligation for military intervention if China invades. So, Peggy, what is the policy? Is it the president's policy or the bureaucrat's policy? Well, there is ambiguity, which is very confusing to a lot of people. And Joe Biden, I don't think, even knows his own position. Ironically, in 2001, when President Bush was president, he talked about Taiwan and our obligation to defend it. Joe Biden, who was senator then, actually wrote an op-ed saying that we reserved the right to defend them, but we didn't have the obligation to defend them. And now in 2022, here he is saying the exact opposite thing. So the world is sensing weakness. She is definitely sensing weakness. And that comes not from a policy change, but from Joe Biden himself. Yeah, Peggy, just, I mean, to us over here, I mean, how much longer do we have to go before someone in the media calls Biden out and says, this man is unsuited to be the president of the United States? On the other hand, I suppose if it's not him, it's Kamala Harris and she's even worse. Right. Well, this is the same media who was complicit in covering up his cognitive decline prior to the election. And so they're certainly not going to admit that they were wrong. Um, It's tragic. We see it in America. And frankly, it's an embarrassment that we're we're being looked at this way around the world. And it's frankly dangerous because, you know, 
whether it's Putin, whether it's Xi, they're looking at this global weakness and instability oh. that Joe Biden has created. Mm. When there's a vacuum of American leadership and power, the world is a much less safe place. And that's what we're seeing today, tragically. It, it is. I mean, uh, just before we go, I mean, just for someone over here, you just see the bloke stand before a lectern. I mean, he, he looks as though he ought to be on his way to an aged people's home. I mean, the bloke is cognitively not with it. You just wonder why the media, and you've said, of course, they were complicit in covering all this up before the election. Someone's got to call this out because to the West of the rest of the world, the leader of the world's democracies is as weak as water. Well, we see it, and it, it begs the question then, if he's not in charge of running the country, who is? That's it. And those people then are unelected and unaccountable, which yeah. is really dangerous. Absolutely. Good to talk to you, Peggy. Your insights today on the gun issue were most instructive. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us. See you next week. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Thank Grandy. You. Wonderful, isn't she? And uh, you can understand why Reagan hired her as an advisor. Very informed. Peggy Grandy in America. Look, how often do we shake our heads that government has never been bigger, never more bloated and never, unfortunately, more useless? With all its resources and bureaucrats coming out of its ears, it can't solve the aged care crisis. It can't solve the curse of homelessness. It can't seem to answer the question, why can't young people afford a home? It certainly doesn't even try to answer the crisis in our classrooms. But we've just come through a period where the nation every night viewed the awful consequences of the floods in southeast Queensland, central and northern New South Wales and western Sydney. This followed on from the horrific pictures of the bushfire crisis in 2019-20. The nation knew the damage and the trauma, the loss and the demoralisation caused by these crises. Where has government been? Indeed, has it ever been more impotent? There is a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into the floods in New South Wales. We learnt yesterday on the first day of the inquiry this is June, or June tomorrow, that residents in Korokai, not far from Lismore, three months on, are still living in tents on footpaths. These are First Nations people, still without a home, after a flood in early March. Tomorrow's June, the first day of winter, and people are living in tents on footpaths. Temporary accommodation has been offered miles away on the Gold Coast, which would involve splitting up communities, adding one crisis to another. The Northern Rivers region of New South Wales is crippled. Evidence was given to the inquiry that there was no coordinated effort from government on the ground for the first seven days. And one witness said, and I quote, then the former federal government decided to turn up and it was a marketing opportunity, unquote. The mayor of Ballina Shire said council staff were forced to travel over the border into Queensland to access internet and phone connection. Well, the New South Wales government seems to be doing its best in providing a $350 million housing response to assist 25,000 households. That averages out at about 14,000 a household. Just think, everything you own has been destroyed, as in the bushfires and now in the floods. Children without all their books, all their toys, even their school. Farmers have lost all their stock and their fencing and their infrastructure. Businesses have lost everything. Where does 14,000 take you? People often say, we've got money for everybody and everything, but not for our own people. When the tsunami struck Indonesia in 2004, the then Prime Minister Howard immediately announced a $1 billion contribution to a newly formed Australia-Indonesia Partnership for Reconstruction and Development. 
We don't seem to have any partnership for the reconstruction and development of the flood and bushfire ravaged Australia. 500 million of the 1 billion way back then was interest-free loans, quote, for the reconstruction and rehabilitation of major infrastructure, unquote. Do these poor buggers who are victims of bushfire and flood get interest-free loans for the reconstruction and rehabilitation of major infrastructure? Who helps the small businessman restock his business or the farmer restock his farm? Andrew Constance, the outstanding Liberal candidate for Gilmore, is still behind the sitting Labor member Fiona Phillips in the tightest electoral contest in the country, even though Andrew Constance gained a swing of over 13%. Andrew Constance knows the scene backwards down there, and he got the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison down into the electorate of Gilmore on the first day of the campaign to promise $40 million to fix potholes, rebuild roads. Now, there are viewers watching me tonight who know that it mightn't seem big bickies, but potholes are an absolute motorist nightmare, indeed a profound danger. There's not a local government area in Australia where any sensible attention is given to fixing potholes immediately. It might have the same ring to it as grand campaign promises, but if you're a motorist driving at night and there's an oncoming car, you can't see the things. In the southern islands of New South Wales and the Windsor Caribbean Shire, someone should be put in the dock. The potholes are so big, some of them could be grave sites. Which brings us back to the simple point. What's government for? Estimates suggest the coronavirus response was well over $80 billion. Yet there are taxpayers out there living in tents on footpaths or disappearing down potholes. And government seems incapable, unwilling or unable to address the problems. Well, may we ask, what on earth do we vote for? Well, look, it's a brutal and politically damaging thing to say that the problems in aged care are of government's own making, all governments. Governments are good at calling inquiries, indeed royal commissions. We've had one into aged care only two years ago. The answers are there. Hundreds of aged Australians have died in aged care as a result of coronavirus. But the Aged Care Royal Commission found that neither the Commonwealth Department of Health nor the aged care regulator had any specific plan for the aged care sector. All governments mouth cliches about dignity and old age, but government has been told that every residential aged care facility to be accredited is expected to have infection controls in place. But the Royal Commission found that across the aged care sector, there have been failures in clinical care and infection control, which failures have, of course, resulted in hundreds of deaths. There are currently up to 200,000 residents in almost 3,000 aged care homes in any one day. These residents are supported by over a million immediate family members. The homes are operated by over 800 care providers employing over 300,000 staff, predominantly female and qualified at a certificate level. Now, many families have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to gain access to one of these aged care homes, but all they've bought is death for their loved ones. The inaugural head of the Federal Aged Care Workforce Strategy Task Force in 2017, five years ago, Professor John Pollers, now these are the government's own experts, warned the Morrison government it would need an extra $3.5 billion a year to provide adequate care. That was five years ago. And that was the low end of what was needed. A report on staffing commissioned by the Aged Care Royal Commission found 57.6% of residents are in homes with staffing that would rate only one or two stars. 
And the report said existing restrictions in relation to aged care had, quote, tragic, irreparable and lasting effects which must be immediately addressed, unquote. The advocacy group Aged Care Crisis said frighteningly in 2020, quote, aged care residents in nursing homes have been raped, robbed, bathed in kerosene, attacked by rodents, suffered injuries or deaths from other residents, burnt to death, strangled, cooked, melted, sedated to death, over-medicated or choked to death, unquote. This is the scandal of aged care. The government has a report from the Royal Commission, 148 recommendations. The government said it would offer a comprehensive response. We've had nothing except promises and now change of government. The Royal Commission found that half the elderly people living in nursing homes had dementia. Yet, quote, we're deeply concerned that so many aged care providers don't seem to have the skills and the capacity required to care adequately for people living with dementia, unquote. Surely it's no surprise that the sector is in crisis. The entry-level pay for an aged care worker is $21.09 an hour, lower than for a supermarket shelf stacker. Indeed, workers in aged care are being paid $15 an hour less than an equivalent carer in the disability sector. The Royal Commission found that more than 44 seniors a day, over 16,000 a year, died waiting for their home care package designed to help older Australians stay in their home. But the average waiting time for an in-home care is 14 months. Well, Jason Waller is the CEO of IntelliCare, whose mission statement says, we innovate to solve the hard problems facing people at risk and those who care about them so they may enjoy life longer. Now, Jason and his team believe that assistive technology should be made available to aged care facilities and home packages immediately. Jason Waller joins me. Jason, thank you for your time. I mean, if, as is being suggested, the budget was to provide, quote, a comprehensive response to the Royal Commission, but didn't, what should that response provide? It should provide, as I said, assistive technology further upstream that's focused on preventing problems and trigger events and identifying deterioration so people don't end up with residential aged care as their destination. Residential aged care should be a safety net, not the final place. We help people stay in their own home mm -hmm. and age in place. So how does this technology work? We use uh, passive sensors. We turn a home into a smart home using movement sensors, door sensors, power sensors and the like. Um, over a period of a week, we use artificial intelligence to look at what the standard sort of behaviour is in the house. And then if something's out of the ordinary, the AI will send a notification out to family or caregivers by their smartphone or on a dashboard, and they should pay attention there. If everything's fine, you get a push notification to your phone that everything's okay in mum or dad's house. That's for that week, but you'll keep monitoring it, will you? Correct. So over a period, we really establish what, what's normal. The AI adjusts if someone is, um, is modifying their behaviour over time, but if there's a sharp decline that requires further attention, like for example, their meal preparation changes significantly, their mobility goes down, they're going to the bathroom at night, which might signal they've got a... a and you can, monitor, you can monitor all this. Sorry to interrupt you, Jason, but you, people are, are listening to you here. You can monitor all this. You're talking about meal preparation or going to the bathroom. So these sensors are monitoring this and you get feedback and you can identify whether that's normal or abnormal or subnormal and respond accordingly. 
Correct. And we do that with our cameras as well, Alan. So they're all very passive. It's not big brother. It's not intrusive. It sits there in the background. And, but, but the patient, or not the patient, uh, the elderly person knows that this is going on. Correct. It's, it's, their, it's their life. It's their privacy. It's their data. So, for example, we had one elderly gent. He was 90 years old. and His meal preparation um, alert went off and was sent to the carers. And he discovered Uber Eats and was ordering Chico Rolls for dinner each night. Now, that's his privilege. He's 90. He can do what he wants. But they provided supplements to his breakfast and lunch. So he's not going to provide, um, suffer from potential malnutrition and therefore deteriorate and end up in residential aged care. He can stay in his own home. So are these people in their own homes, do they have carers as well to whom, with whom you can communicate? Or are we talking about technology which allows them, without carers, to stay in their home? It's, it's both. So most of our clients have a home care package and they have professional carers. So it addresses some of the staffing issues in aged care because it allows those carers to be more productive and provide higher quality of care with less, less staff. I think throwing more money at the staffing problem is never going to work because we've got a structural problem with the population base. And it also engages families. So both those family and the care workers can start to working together. We also have it in residential care facilities in Australia and internationally. And, and, and how many people are the beneficiaries of this kind of technology currently, say, in Australia? Where is this operative? We have um, people in um, most states in Australia. We have uh, uh, over 600 clients currently using it. Um, we think, however, that the government needs to do more to make this technology available further upstream. So as soon as they're qualifying for a home care package, don't wait until they have 14 months gone down the track and then they've found yeah. their carer. Put this in place now so you've got the families that are engaged. We can start looking after them from the beginning rather than having to wait for this inordinate queue where we see more people dying waiting for a package than packages are provided additionally each year. And, and what access... Oh, I'm going to ask you a ridiculous question because I know the answer before I ask it, but what access are you given to government and bureaucracies who are allegedly managing this aged care crisis in order to incorporate the kind of technology, beneficial technology, that you're talking about? It's, it's been very frustrating, Alan. You, you cited the Royal Commission. Our company, IntelliCare, was cited in the Royal Commission's report as an example of how this should be used. But when I've been dealing with the government and department, I get a lot of very positive head nodding and agreement and liking of the technology, but I see no action. We've been waiting for reforms of home care packages for over two years now. We've been waiting for reforms that include assistive technology in those packages up front. And I, all I see is money being spent in the last budget on studies to develop a plan. Yes, I It's know. not even any action. It's no, to develop a plan. That's I what the, that's money's for. But supposing there are people listening to you now and they think, well, this sounds fantastic. A, I want my parents to be able to live in their own home and I'd love uh, all these sorts of things that Jason's talked about to be monitored to give me a better understanding of whether we're on the right tram. How much would such a package cost to the family? It's about $1,200 up front and 60 a month. It's less than a cup of coffee a day. God's sake. And compared to the price of a fall or hospitalisation or residential aged care, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's, it's peanuts. And it's easily affordable out of the unspent funds in home care packages, but we don't see enough being done by government to, to provide that as an incentive um, to be spent up front. And what is, it, what is the take-up rate 
a consequence of people not knowing or are they suspicious of technology? Why aren't more people? You mentioned, how many, how many clients did you say you had? We have over 600. Right. Why haven't we got 6,000? Well, obviously there is um, always some reticence about big brother and surveillance, but we've seen that really go away post-COVID as the elderly become more au yeah. fait with technology. Yeah. The real problem is the home care service providers are so blasted by the problem they're facing with COVID and their staff shortages, their ability to drive these kinds of programs forward is very limited. Yeah. We need the government who regulate this market. So that, that it's, not, it's not a straightforward market. It's a regulated market to step in and say, this should be mandatory. This is what we need. And I'm not saying just IntelliCare's product. Choose a competitor. I don't care. I think just more needs to be done here. But why wouldn't someone in government say, now, listen, this bloke makes a lot of sense, this Jason Waller. Uh, get him on board. Ask him to, I mean, give a few pilot programs if need be. Why isn't there an enthusiasm for doing it better and using this kind of technology? It's got me beat, to be honest, Alec. We've, we've put forward to both sides of mm. government um, proposals for a pilot program, particularly in regional and remote areas, yep. where even though people might have a package, there's no service provider. It's a thin market. There's, right. there's no ability to use their package. But what we see is both intransience and also lethargy. Right. You've spoken to Claire O'Neill, the Labor spokesperson for this? I, I wrote to her yesterday about it. OK, I'll talk to her. I'll talk to her and I'll get back to you. I mean, you're making an awful okay. lot of sense and I've got to confess, until I've spoken to you tonight, I knew nothing about it. So we're all wiser. I think it's a fantastic concept and when these things are available, it's up to government to avail themselves of it. So, Jason, we'll keep in touch. I'll talk to Claire O'Neill, who's going to be the new minister, and we'll see if we can make some progress. That'd be wonderful, Alan. As I said in our mission statement, we just want to do good here. Perhaps I understand that, Jason. Good to talk to you. There he is. Now, doesn't that make sense? Jason Waller, the CEO of, it's called IntelliCare, I-N-T-L-I-C-A-R-E. Many thanks, Jason. Keep at it. Thanks, Alan. There Appreciate your support. Not Tomorrow. at all. Jason Waller. Look, I know there is so much going on domestically and people just struggle to meet their everyday demands, but things are happening around the world which have the potential to impact on us and many like-minded countries. Now, I mentioned yesterday about world food shortages. You need the reputable journal The Economist headlined on its front page, and I quote, the food catastrophe. I've mentioned before the extraordinary resource endowment of Ukraine. Coal, iron ore, natural gas, manganese, salt, oil, graphite, sulphur, titanium, nickel, magnesium, timber, mercury, the list is endless. Russia wants the stuff. Ukraine's output of grain and potatoes is amongst the highest in Europe. With the Russian invasion, food exports have been severely interrupted, and that will create food security issues around the world. Much of Ukraine's corn and wheat has gone to Africa and West Asia. If Ukraine's food exports are disturbed, and they are, global food security is going to be a big issue. There are villages around Kiev where thousands of tonnes of grain have been destroyed or left to rot. Russian forces have targeted grain elevators and fertiliser plants, leaving the infrastructure in pieces. Last year's grain harvest is still in the country. 25 million tonnes of grain, a lot of it corn, because Odessa's ports, through which 98% of its grain exports normally pass, are blockaded by the Russians. Getting grain to alternative ports in Romania, Bulgaria and the Baltics is hard. 
And the problems are not restricted to Ukraine. In India, the wheat crops have been battered by severe winds and hail in February. And in Uttar Pradesh, about 700 kilometres southeast of Delhi, the wind and hail have been followed by unseasonal heat, which has shriveled the wheat crop. There are suggestions in India that the wheat yield is down by a quarter. The result is that on May 13, the Indian government imposed an export ban on wheat, though it said it would make exceptions for specific countries in need. Nonetheless, there are 26 countries implementing severe restrictions on food exports. In many cases, they're outright bans. Yet by some estimates, four-fifths of the global population live in countries which are net importers of food. In 2021, Russia and Ukraine were the world's first and fifth biggest exporters of wheat, 28% of the world market. The United Nations World Food Programme, on which more than 115 million people depend, last year secured 50% of its wheat from Ukraine. It's now saying the war could drive 47 million more people into acute food insecurity. As I raised last week with Matt Canavan, farms also need fertiliser, but China and Russia have banned the export of fertilisers. As Matt Canavan said, they weren't worried in Glasgow, China and Russia, about what the temperature would be in 2050. They were worried about how we can grow food in 2030. Half the food we eat is only grown thanks to fertilisers that are made from fossil fuels. But remember, Banton the Greens are talking about getting rid of coal, gas and oil by 2030. What do they know about growing food? Natural gas is the main feedstock that is used to convert carbon dioxide, hydrogen and nitrogen into a fertiliser known as urea. Wheat yields up until now have tripled over the past 60 years thanks to fossil fuels from which fertilisers are born. World hunger has disappeared. It may not stay. For those going on about demonising fossil fuels, do they know anything about the fact that fossil fuels have a profound impact on the growing of food? Matt Canavan made all these points splendid to me last week. Fertiliser bans go hand in glove with the demonisation of fossil fuels. In Ukraine, where the agriculture minister is now saying that the wheat crop will be at least 20 to 30% smaller than expected this year, half the winter wheat fields are in the part occupied and part fought over southeast. Many of those fields in Ukraine are scattered with explosives. Infrastructure has been destroyed. Water, power and fuel are in short supply. Fertiliser applications can't be honoured. Pests and diseases have run amok. And as long as Odessa is blockaded, the harvest will have no route to market. And while Russian farmers don't face problems with bombing, their large farms, which supply global markets with grain, have been importing more than a million dollars worth of pesticides and seeds from the European Union. But now most Western seed and chemical companies have pulled out of Russia. Now, animals are significant consumers of grain stock. Ukraine and Russia grow a lot of grain used to feed animals. About 40% of the wheat grown in the EU is eaten by cows. About a third of America's maize or corn is eaten by cattle. If the amount of feed is reduced or if substitutes are used with a lower energy content, the animals grow less or more slowly or both. Changes to animal feed, together with culls and production cutbacks, cause meat and dairy prices to rocket. No country will be immune to the effects of this crisis. But those hit worst, of course, are the poor ones, because poor people 
spend the greatest share of their income on food, something like a quarter of the household budget. And of course, for us, higher food prices are reflected in higher inflation and then interest rates go up. Put the interest rates up, as governments do, and that's progressively happening here. That drives up the cost of credit, which hurts farmers when inputs are already expensive. The World Bank sees the effect of war on trade and welfare as having a massive reduction in global real income of about $600 billion. Is the world going to stand by and watch this Russia-Ukraine conflict continue with such catastrophic consequences? Or as I said yesterday, does this further demonstrate the crisis in Western political leadership? A coming food catastrophe indeed. Right, before we go, already the reaction from National Party supporters to the elevation of former banker and member for Maranoa, David Littleproud, to the party's leadership is telling. When he won the leadership, the first thing Littleproud told the press pack was that he'd, be, he'd aim for the sensible centre. I read this and I thought, I've heard this stupid statement somewhere before. And I was right. Those words were famously mouthed by Malcolm Turnbull in the past. The sensible centre. What does it even mean? David Littleproud is the Malcolm Turnbull of the National Party. They share a lot in common. A former banker, a serial schemer, disloyal to their former respective leaders and wooden on the campaign trail, pretending to be something they are not. And just like how Tony Abbott threw Turnbull a political lifeline in the form of keeping him on the front bench despite his Machiavellian ways, it was Barnaby Joyce who first promoted the little-known backbencher to the ministry. When I went to Durham-Bandy, southwest of St George in Queensland, to comfort locals in the peak of devastating drought, they couldn't hack this little proud. A tin-ear politician who failed them time and time again. Whenever I'd get him on radio to write a list drawn up by the department of who was and wasn't impacted by drought so assistance could be delivered effectively and immediately, this was at a time when Barnaby Joyce was hung out to dry by Turnbull, just like the Liberal Party. The National Party has changed drastically. In Canberra, it no longer represents the Bush. It's controlled by left-wing party hacks, some of whom try their hand at being in the Liberal Party, and when that fails, jump over and join the Nationals, don't they, Ben Franklin? The collapse of this once noble and honest party makes my blood boil. Why? Because I know what it's like to experience drought, floods and fire, and to grow up in a little country town with next to no public amenities, and to work the land all day and night with little thanks from city folk, and these regional Australians struggle to have a voice in our national parliaments. They are, in many ways, the forgotten Australians. And in Canberra and elsewhere, the so-called National Party are meant to be their voice. Yet this lot include people like Chester, McCormack and Littleproud. Ask the Bush what they think of that lot. Some comments online sum up the mood. Judy wrote of the dumping of Barnaby Joyce, and I quote, Are you stark raving mad? You just lost my entire family's vote. Bring back Barnaby. Jake wrote, Nationals just lost a lot of votes in the country. Little Proud is just a greenie in the wrong party. Unquote. Jim wrote, very poor decision. Go woke at your own peril. If the leadership remains, he says, this way, you'll no doubt lose seats next time. George wrote, quote, with this bloke in charge, let this be the end of the National Party. Unquote. Well, people can spot a cookie-cutter politician from a mile away. And Little Proud is your quintessential politician, not a fighter for the bush. Those in the party like Ross Cadell, 
I hear you say, who? He's a senator. But it was Barnaby Joyce and his branches who helped get him into Parliament. Now he'll always be known as a political backstabber. Welcome to the new National Party, the thorn in Peter Dutton's side. Well, that's it from me. More of that tomorrow, I can tell you, though. Thank you for watching on ADH TV. I'll see you at the same time tomorrow night. Good night.